How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 35 of Chris's on Infinite Earths here at the Chris and Reggie channel. We made it two weeks in a row. How about that? Uh, I wouldn't have bet on that if I were a uh, betting man, but here we are. Um, I'm not prepared to say that you can find this program weekly at chrisandreggie.com, chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and all the places you hear noise, but uh, hey, you know, two weeks in a row, so that's, uh, that's better than we were uh, a week and a couple days ago, I suppose. Um, now, if you joined me last week, uh, first, thank you very much. Uh, second, you might have noticed that it's a little bit different than uh, what we usually do here. Uh, it was a lot less uh, navel-gazing by me and uh, more a uh, journey into some weird comics history. And this week, we're going to do something uh, similar to that. We're going to keep with the uh, weird comics history sort of thing. Only this week, it's going to be... Uh, I was going to say a little more salacious, but uh, it's actually going to be quite a bit more salacious. It's uh, not going to be the lighthearted, you know, Steve Gerber and Eric Larson swipe Howard the Duck from Marvel. This one is uh, a little, a little, a lot more serious. Uh, actually, completely serious. Uh, it's a story that I found out about uh, sort of, kind of by accident. Um, you know, the uh, the old rabbit hole thing where you you pull on a thread and then you find out that you know the more you pull on that thread. The uh, darker and uh, weirder and uh, just more messed up <laughs> a certain situation or story might become. And then uh, by the time you're done with it, you can hardly even remember what uh, you know prompted you down this path to begin with. Uh, now, a little, uh, I guess, a disclaimer before we go into the story. This, uh, this story is going to have to do with some very real-life situations and uh, a very uh, horrible act. Um, but we will, we will get there. Uh, this is a... Very different in tone episode here, and uh, I do hope you join me on this uh, on this little uh, journey here. We are going to be talking about the first issue of the Crimson Avenger miniseries from 1988, but uh, that's more of a means to an end um, because the actual story that we're going to be talking about has very little to do with that issue or that miniseries. But it will have to do with the artist of that miniseries, a fellow by the name of Greg Brooks. But uh, we will get there as we go along. Um, I first heard about what we're going to discuss uh, back in uh, December of 2016. And uh, I was immediately captivated by the story. It's, it's not a good story. It's not a happy story. It's, uh, it's a horrible story. But it was uh, something that I'd never heard of before. And it captured uh my attention and I, I wanted to talk about it i wanted to hear what other people thought about this and i assumed since i knew nothing about it that probably a lot of the folks who ran in my circles also did not know much about this and uh turned out that i was right in that regard i, I did speak to a bunch of uh, my friends about this story and none of them knew anything about it uh Further, uh, they weren't as taken by the story as I was. Uh, it's just another, maybe one of those cases of something that I think is really important just not being important at all. Kind of like our friend Leonard the Duck last week. But uh, let's. Uh, I want to go back to how this rabbit hole of mine started. And uh, that takes us back to the uh, Superblog team-up from uh, December of 2016. Uh, this was the Christmas team-up. And it was kind of a uh, impromptu uh, crossover event uh, with the uh, with the super bloggers there. It wasn't a you know an event that we were planning for for months and months. It was like 
a couple weeks before Christmas, somebody had commented, hey, we should do something for Christmas. And then everybody was like, yeah, let's do something for Christmas. So that's kind of what we did. Um, now, I was still very young in my content creating career at that point. Uh, I was doing it less than a year at this at, at that point. And I was uh, even more so than I am now. I was in a very more is more sort of mindset. So what is it if you... If you can't dazzle them with brilliance, you baffle them with whatever. And uh, it was sort of my uh, my offering for that uh, event was the entirety of the 1988 Christmas with the Superheroes uh, from DC Comics. And uh, if you're familiar with that issue, uh, you'll know it has like 7 billion pages. Uh, it was such a pain in the ass to do. Um and it was probably something that I should have gotten a running start before I did it. Um, that's one of the problems with uh, being a daily content creator is that you uh, you don't have much time to to get ahead, you know, because you're always doing something. And when you're done with one thing, when you're done with today's piece, it's on to the next thing. You know, you don't have the time to really get ahead. And uh, while that probably would have you know, behooved me back in December of 2016 to maybe take a week to put together this uh, Christmas with the superheroes piece. I didn't. I I was I had to do it all in one day, and I want to say it took about seven or eight hours to do. Um, I think it's my longest post even to this day over at the site. Um, it is something like six or seven or eight full length stories. Um, and, and it was, it's ridiculous. It's not something I would sign up to do again, but uh, I was, like I said, I was still very young in the uh, community at that point and uh, was trying to do whatever I could to, you know, get noticed and, and be in good graces and, and just be notable for something, you know? Um, I'm not doing anything special. I'm not doing anything that other people aren't already doing better. Um, so... If I can't uh, if I can't beat people with quality, I'll beat them with quantity, I suppose. But uh, I was doing this uh, Christmas with the superheroes, and uh, like I said, it was a billion pages long. Um, and in it was a, a little uh, strip, a little half-page comic strip. Uh, it was a Caps Hobby Hints strip. Now, if you're familiar with Caps Hobby Hints, you'll know exactly what that is. If you're not, it's a you know a Silver Age sort of thing. Where a half a page of just a comic strip, you know, it's uh, it was drawn by uh, Henry Boltonoff. Uh, I believe that's Murray Boltonoff's brother, but I, I might be mistaken there. And I, I I'm guessing they're related with the name Boltonoff. I just don't know what their relation is necessarily. But uh, there was one of those in this Christmas with the superheroes, which to me fit in fine because uh, the mixture of stories included in this uh, collection they spanned. You know, several ages. There was stuff there that was originally printed in the 70s, some some from the 60s, some from the 80s. So it kind of ran the gamut insofar as, you know, comics ages. So a Silver AG Caps Hobby Hints was, you know, not, not outside the uh, the realm of possibilities to include. And uh, I, you know, I saw it, didn't think much of it, snapped a picture of it because, uh, you know, if you follow my blog, you'll see that I have... Uh, I have things broken into sections, and I'll sometimes have a letters page. If they have a letters page, I'll have, uh, you know, the ads that I think are interesting enough to share. And then in certain situations, I'll have, like, a little weird, like, etc., you know, or fun stuff section, where I'll just include 
stuff that isn't an ad, stuff that isn't a panel necessarily, uh, stuff that isn't a letters page or a bulletin page. It's just extra. And uh, the Caps Hobby Hints was something that I snapped a picture of, didn't think twice about it. Um, honestly, I was just happy it wasn't another page of story I would need to, you know, parse out and analyze. So I took a picture of it, plopped it into the uh, into the piece, and I uh, really didn't think of it again. Next day, I'm, you know, sharing it. Uh, I'm sharing it with the Superblog team up crew. And I'm flipping down, you know, I'm just checking to make sure I don't have any mistakes or errors or something. Uh... And I come to the Caps Hobby Hints uh, strip. And I'm like, ah, you know, maybe I'll just take a look at it. And uh, one thing that jumped out to me was the uh, signature on it. It was signed by Ty Templetoff, which to me said it was probably Ty Templeton doing, you know, uh, giving a little bit of a nod to Henry Boltonoff. I didn't want to outright say that because here's something. <laughs> If you uh, if you are a blogger or a podcaster, and you want um, some sort of engagement, make a mistake. That's how you get engagement early on. You make a mistake because people will love to call you out on it. Um, you know, right now on my site, I've got I've got a handful of like really great commenters who will uh, you know take time out of their day to leave their thoughts on a on a piece that I wrote or just to you know converse with me, and it's it's a great time. Early on, I mean, this wasn't always the case. Uh, early on, it would be, you know, you'd get all excited that you got a comment, and then you'd open it up, and uh, the first three letters of it would be FYI, <laughs> or the first word of it will be actually, because they uh, are pointing out your, your mistake. Uh, they won't comment on anything else in the piece. They don't want to talk about the story, the art, your opinion. They just want to point out that you made a mistake. And uh, so I wasn't going to just... Uh, I, it wasn't where, it wasn't the hill I wanted to die on to say, oh, this is definitely Ty Templeton, you know, and so I left it, I left it at, you know, I didn't even comment on it. So okay, it says Ty Templetoff, whatever, <laughs> I didn't care, but uh, I decided that I wanted to do a little bit of research on this to see if I could get confirmation. I mean, I mean, between you and me, uh, it's it's, I mean, it's almost a no-brainer, <laughs> you know. The on was changed to an off. Ty Templetoff. Uh, it's almost definitely. I've never seen 100% confirmation of it. But, I mean, you know, the sneaking suspicion. What are you going to do? But uh, as I'm looking for this, I'm Googling this uh, this piece, and I come across a, uh, like a weird, um, you know, we come, I come across a weird blo- a message board post from 2013. Okay. Now, before I get to what that post said, I do want to go through this uh, Caps Hobby Hints. Now, it has to do with uh, a, a child. Uh, was, this is back in the day when kids used to, you know, build things with hammers and nails, and, and uh, they used to work with their hands. It wasn't, uh, you know, tablets, uh, or tablets uh, video games, and Beanie Babies like it is now. But, uh, you know, we have a couple of kids here, and one of them just hit his hit his finger with a hammer. So another kid comes over and says that, you know, Mr. Cap from the, the hobby shop gave him a hint. He showed him how to properly, or just a little tip on how to not hurt yourself with a hammer. And so he takes out a comb, which, you know, kids in the 50s and 60s always had in their back pocket. And he gets the nail between two teeth of the comb, and he hammers it that way. So his fingers are way, way, way far away from the impact point. And, uh... Oh boy, it's a great tip, you know, you're, you're going to save your fingers, 
And, you know, stands to reason that back in the day when kids did build things with hammers and nails, this would be a great hint, right? Why not? One thing here about Cap's hobby hints is uh, they would they would be sent in by fans and readers here, and each strip would include like a little thank you blurb, you know, thanks to you know Chris in Arizona for this this hint on how to make a stammering podcast, you know that kind of thing. Now this one says thanks to Lee Travis of Cleveland, Ohio. If you're anything like me, at least as I was in 2016, that that means nothing to you. Because I haven't the foggiest idea what that's all about. But what I know now, and uh, as we're going to dig into a little bit more, Lee Travis is actually the secret identity of the Crimson Avenger. Why is that important? And and how is that even relevant to anything that we're going to get to today? Well, let's get back to that message board post from 2013 here. And uh, this was on the... uh, OG13.com message board, whatever that is. Uh, This strip comes up in conversation, and it's referred to as, quote, DC's disgusting joke. And uh, didn't know what that was all about. Didn't know why this would be considered, you know, quote, disgusting. Um, And turns out, some of the commenters on this message board also didn't understand. It went over their head as well, and they just assumed that maybe this was... I don't know, a little bit of a DC's insensitivity uh, using a nail and a hammer and uh, it being a Christmas issue and, and Jesus, you know, dying on the cross. And so people thought that that might be what this disgusting joke innuendo was all about. But one of the posters did go on to elaborate. And again, I mean, this is rumor and innuendo. And, uh, At this point, I'm not making any claims to the validity of this information, but we will get deep into this as we go along. Um, I'll I'll read you what this message board post says. It says, Now, how could this little harmless comic be offensive? If you look to the right, it says, Thanks to Lee Travis, Cleveland, Ohio. Well, who was Lee Travis? He is better known as a superhero of the late 1930s, the Crimson Avenger. Now we're getting somewhere. Earlier in the summer, the four-issue miniseries The Crimson Avenger was released. What makes this interesting is sometime between the conclusion of this miniseries and the Christmas with the Superhero special, the artist of The Crimson Avenger series killed his wife with a hammer. You can read more about it right here, and they include a link that I don't believe works anymore. This was under... I can only assume Mark Wade's watchful eye based on that issue's credits. This is the Cap ho- Cap's Hobby hints, of course. The artist, Ty Templetoff, could it actually be Ty Templeton? We might never know. This got me thinking. I wonder how many inside jokes, hidden symbolism, coded messages, and the like are hidden right beneath our noses. Was this a crude joke made by some DC staffers or an honest coincidence? We'll get there. But first, I mean, this is some pretty... Sobering news here. Uh, The artist, Greg Brooks of the Crimson Avenger miniseries, did a really bad thing. But this is just some message board chatter here. Could it even remotely be true? Well, as with rabbit holes, we dig deeper. And uh, that hole grew wider, deeper, and uh, darker. So, uh, I mean, I came here just to see if Ty Templeton was Ty Templetoff. (laughs) That's all it was. Um, and here we are learning about a murder. Um, so I kept poking around. And, uh, like, I'm getting, like, a fever 
as I'm doing this, I'm like, you know, I stumbled upon something very, very strange here. Uh, I ultimately found myself at the altar of the Answer Man, Bob Rosakis. And this is an archived piece from the Comics Bulletin that was dated September 16, 2002. And he says the following. With thanks to my pal Bob Greenberger, who helped jostle my memory, here's the story. An artist named Greg Brooks, who did some work for DC back in the late 80s, including the Crimson Avenger miniseries of 1988, lived on Staten Island with his wife and baby. His wife, Elizabeth Kessler, did some work for DC as well, coloring a couple of jobs, including a story in Doom Patrol No. 9. That's the 80s version of the title. Um, Elizabeth went missing, and her body was eventually found by police at a construction site about a mile from their home. She had been beaten to death with a hammer and dumped there. It turned out that Brooks and Kessler had been having problems in their relationship, and she took up with another man. At one point, she returned for her things, got into an argument with Brooks, and while the baby was in the room, she bragged about what a better lover the new guy was. Enraged, he grabbed the hammer and struck her dead. Her body was dumped in the bathtub overnight, and at the crack of dawn, he wheeled her in a grocery cart to the construction site. Brooks was charged and convicted of her murder and went to prison. Turned out that wasn't the end of the story. Elizabeth Kessler was not really Elizabeth Kessler. She had appropriated the the identity of her college roommate when she moved east from Kansas. And back home, she had another child who was being taken care of by her mother. Eventually, her mother ended up with custody of both children. Bob Greenberger reports that he got a letter from Brooks while he was still in prison. He had been working on his art while incarcerated, and Joe Rubenstein was helping him out by mail. Brooks was released from prison about two years ago, so it was around the year 2000, got a job as a bicycle messenger, and even made an appointment to bring his portfolio up to Bob for review. He never showed up, says Bob, and I haven't heard from him since. The Answer Man wraps up with, and that is the story of the comic book murderer. So, yeah, that got real in a hurry, didn't it? Um, Now it seems as though uh, Brooks and Kessler had... uh, pretty tumultuous association and uh, some pretty uh, mm, salacious uh, things going on in their lives. And, uh, you know, as I when I wrote this originally for the blog, I decided not to dig up actual police records, uh, and I, I didn't in the interim as well, uh, because that makes me feel <laughs> really skeevy, and also I wouldn't have the first idea how. Um, but what we do know here from uh, Rosakis's missive is that Brooks was arrested, and he was in jail for about a decade. And if his timeline is anywhere near right, you know, he was probably in there from, you know, 1989 to the year 2000. So, let's jump back to Cap's hobby hints, okay? Now, we're going to look at an interview from comic book creator number three from Tomorrow's. Uh, this is the fall 2013 issue. In it, there's an interview with Mark Wade, where he recalls his days as a young editor at DC Comics and how the inclusion of this Cap's Hobby Hints strip ultimately uh, cost him his, uh, his job as, uh, as editor there. Now, this is from the Wade interview. He says, uh, A lot of Roy's, Roy Thomas's artists, were hungry up-and-comers. One of them was a kid named Greg Brooks, roughly my age. Greg ended up being my freelancer. Roy wanted him for a Crimson Avenger miniseries, and I used him on some secret origin stories. He was still learning, but he was pretty good. I genuinely liked him. 
He would come into my office with his wife, Elizabeth, who was awesome, and she'd bring their infant baby with them. I referred to the baby as their agent because it's really hard not to give work to an earnest freelancer who is literally showing, he, showing you the mouth he has to feed. Greg was a nice, mild-mannered guy, but he had an incredibly volatile temper. One of those things I look back on and see as one of those red flags you don't notice until it's too late. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Then uh, the the interviewer chips in here with, uh, Neither Wade nor the comics industry could have been prepared for what came next. Back to Wade's recollection. I'm sitting there at my desk one day, the fall of 88. Word comes in. Greg came in to pick up a check or some some work, all distraught and beside himself, saying something something had happened to Elizabeth. She'd fallen in the shower and killed herself hitting her head. Oh my God, my heart went out to her, obviously. Everyone's did. What can we do to help? Whatever we can do. I can't believe this. I feel so bad. I feel sorry for you. He left my office, and I was positively shell-shocked. Again, we weren't close, but I liked these people. I'd taken them out to dinner. I've loaned them a 20 now and again. I've been Greg's champion, and while we weren't bosom buddies, we certainly enjoyed a friendship that went, that went beyond employer-employee. So, Greg leaves my office, goes up to Marvel, sits down with whoever he works with there, and tells him that he lost his wife because she was hit by a car. Again, I can't stress highly enough that in the days without email or Rich Johnston and the internet, it took a while for people to start putting things together. First, it's Greg is going around telling different stories about what happened to his wife. Then it's, did you hear he left town? Then it's, do you hear he's in jail? Layers of an onion. And that's how the whole saga peeled back. What I'm telling you is that in the space of 20 minutes is a story that took four days to unfold in 1988, in tiny bits and confusing fragments. Eventually, the whole truth came out. Turned out Elizabeth and Greg had been separated for a while. Nobody knew that. And he said she'd come back to the apartment to let him visit with the baby, and she was taunting him about her new boyfriend while he was just trying to do some work around the house, building a bookcase. That's when it became an EC comic story. She's taunting him. He's got a hammer in his hand, and he snaps and loses his mind and bashes her head right in front of their infant kid. With no idea what to do next, he wraps garbage bags around the body and puts it in the bathtub while he tries to figure out how to proceed. It takes him days. At one point, an inker I'd rather not name stopped by to visit and asked to use the bathroom. Sorry, no, it's broken. Greg finally takes the body uses the baby stroller to wheel it downstairs and throws it in the dumpster. He gives the baby to the landlord and his wife to look after because, as he told them, there was a family emergency up in Canada. He hightails it to Canada for a few days to hang out with a friend and prominent comic book freelancer. A week or so later, he returns to New York, and the cops are waiting for him. Why didn't they pursue him sooner, more actively? because it took them several days to pin him as a suspect once they found the body, since, as it turns out, Elizabeth wasn't who she said she was. She was living under an assumed name. Years before, she'd embezzled money from the insurance company she was working at, stole her college roommate's name and identification, again, much easier to do back in the mid-80s, and made a life for herself in New York. So, when the cops found the body in the dumpster and checked fingerprints, nothing matched up. I'm relating this story in one take. We heard it over three to four days, and every new revelation was a punch to the gut. I didn't know how to begin to process this news, so I coped with it the way a lot of clumsy, dark-humored kids would, inappropriately. 
which brings us right to that Caps Hobby hint strip here. And uh, uh, Mr. Wade does continue talking about that in this interview. He says, As time passed, I would joke about it around the office, trying to make light of something that was clearly too horrible for me to wrap my mind around. And thus began the end of my brief editorial career. The final nail in the coffin, ah, see what I did there? That was him, not me. I did not make that joke. Uh, Came when I was assembling a DC Christmas special a few months later. Reprints of Silver Age material. In the Silver Age spirit, I decided to create some half-page fillers, one of which was Cap's Hobby Hints, illustrated craft and model-building tips suggested by readers who were always given a thanks to. I wrote one that demonstrated how to hold a nail with a comb to keep from hitting your hand with a hammer. To my credit, I refrained from writing thanks for this tip to Greg Brooks. Less to my credit, I couldn't let it go altogether, and when a fellow editor suggested Lee Travis, the secret identity of the Crimson Avenger, which Greg had drawn a little over a year earlier, we giggled, and I had it lettered. It was in poor taste, and I make no excuses. Then, publisher Paul Levitz lost his mind over it. Months and months after it had gone to print, unnoticed and uncommented on by anyone on planet Earth... Um, The joke got picked up by Comics Buyer's Guide, and it was the scandal of the year. Paul was livid, and would have fired me on the spot had Dick not interceded. I'm assuming that's Giordano. Uh, Paul then gave me the choice of taking a month of unpaid leave, or doing 40 hours of community service to pay off, quote, my ethical debt to the company. I did community service. In retrospect, I should have just said, call me in a month, but I felt bad, and I was scared, and I wanted to work at DC more than anything in the world. That was my dream job. So, uh, I guess it was a it was a very subtle gag, wasn't it? Um, nobody in DC noticed it. It took a you know an eagle-eyed reader of the Comics Buyer's Guide to uh, point it out. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to editorialize, because this is... I, this goes way above, you know, my head here. I'm nobody. I'm nothing to this story. And it was, you know, a very long time ago. But, uh, I, you know, I guess if it was written with malice or as a way to poke fun, it's... And Wade admits it was not in the best uh, taste. It wasn't in... It wasn't the best judgment call to do it. And, uh, you know, it might have just been informed by, you know, youthful edginess. You know how we uh, we were when we were kids, or even to this day. You know we you make light of things that are that are too difficult to process. It's it's you know it's human. It's what we do. Uh, it's a way to it's a way to make ourselves wrap our heads around things and maybe take a little bit of uh, of the fear out of a certain situation. Um, I mean, I'd like to think we've all been in situations like that. Uh, sometimes those jokes land. Sometimes they don't. Uh, this might have been a case where it didn't, or maybe it did, but it made DC look bad, so it sort of de facto didn't. Um, but uh, that's the confirmation that uh, this you know half-page Caps Hobby hint strip you know led to uh, someone losing their job, uh, led to Mark Wade uh, ultimately you know being relieved of his duties as editor at DC Comics. Here um, we do have some more uh, for you here. Uh, there was an interview done with Roy Thomas regarding, you know, basically everything he did at DC in the 80s um, over at Alter Ego, the Centennial, which is also known as Alter Ego Magazine number 100, that had a February 2011 cover date from Tomorrow's. Now, in it, the issue of Greg Brooks and the Crimson Avengers eventually comes up, to which he would say the following. The interviewer asks, 
Another Earth 2 character you did was the Crimson Avenger, a four-issue miniseries, and you had a problem there, too. Roy would say, yes, we sure did, though a different kind for a change. Dan and I were picking up from the nice reception to a story we'd done with Gene Colan in Secret Origins No. 6, one of our best. DC assigned a young artist named Greg Brooks to the miniseries, and he was doing a fairly good job. But then, halfway through the the series, he got arrested and eventually sent to prison for murdering his wife, who was also the mother of his child. I recall talking to her once briefly on the phone when I phoned Greg, and I remember that she was singularly unpleasant to me for no reason I could discern. I never met Greg, didn't really know him, but he did a reasonably interesting work with the heavy Toth, Alex Toth, influence, though I would have preferred Colin. Mike Gustavich, or Gustavik, ended up finishing that run. That was another project Dan and I did very much together, which made sense, because so much of the plotting and dialogue on the Secret Origins tale had been hers. I had mostly edited and added the parts dealing with the 1938 Orson Welles Invasion from Mars broadcast. The uh, Crimson Avenger had some real possibilities, but I guess it was a cursed project. By that point, I'd almost begun to believe my whole tenure at DC was a doomed project, but I was far from willing to to give up on it because there were so many upsides to it as well. The interviewer says, I'll tell you something about Greg Brooks. He had gotten friendly with Alex Toth, and Alex used to tell me about how nice his girlfriend sounded and how sweet she was. He said they seemed very much in love and got married. He talked to both of them a number of times, and then, of course, when he heard the news, he called me to tell me about it. He just couldn't believe it. I know there was a great sadness for him. Roy says, I heard it was a fit of anger or passion and and that the murder weapon was a hammer. The interviewer says, that was the way I understood it, yes. I, I know that at one point when Brooks was in prison, he tried to contact Alex and Alex didn't want to deal with him after what had happened. But he wrote a letter that you printed in Alter Ego, I believe. Thomas doesn't remember this. He's, he's like, Greg Brooks, really? Um, but, uh... The interviewer says, yeah, I'm sure I saw his name in a letters page. Back to Roy Thomas, he says, if you remember what issue that was, let me know, because I'm not, sh- I'm sure not aware of it. I did research. I couldn't find it either. Um, I, don't have, I don't have a full run of, uh, of Alter Ego, so it very well could be out there, but uh, I don't know which one it was, um, or if it was. Uh, back to Roy, he says, maybe he wrote a letter and somehow I didn't recognize the name or thought it must be some other Greg Brooks. Now, here's where things get even darker. He says, The one other thing I remember is hearing that one DC editor, whose name I won't mention, hung a hammer on the wall at DC and scrawled under it the Greg Brooks Memorial Hammer. I could never have any respect for anyone who did that. Such a despicable, unfeeling thing to do. So, yeah, the the gallows humor gets a little bit... uh, darker here, um, and a little bit more personal, uh, you know, with this, uh, Greg Brooks from Memorial Hammer, that's, uh, it's quite a statement, um, I'm not gonna make any guesses as to who or if that might have been, um, this is a just the facts as I'm finding them sort of a situation, I'm not gonna opine or editorialize, but, uh, if that happened, I mean, that's, a that, that stinks, right? I mean, that goes a step past the, uh, you know, the other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the play, you know, sort of thing. This is, this is someone that they, and if this was true, and I'm not saying it was, uh, the gag here is about two former co-workers, one of whom is dead, and the other one done did the deed, right? Um, 
is very personal. Uh, Brooks had worked, of course, on the Crimson Avenger, and Kessler worked as a colorist, and uh, she actually did uh, work on a Doom Patrol bonus book um, that uh, I, I covered at the blog as well a while ago without even making the connection to this story. Um, Roy Thomas didn't name names. I'm not going to name names because I know even less. Um, but yeah, it's pretty personal stuff there. And to be completely honest, the whole thing just makes me feel very, very uncomfortable. It's a, it's a very dark story. It's not the sort of thing that I usually cover. But um, it was something that I wanted to talk about uh, on the blog because it is just one of those pieces of weird comics history that we don't really hear about all that much. Um, it's such a such a dark story that I'm I'm like surprised. Like I even like even reading. Mark Wade and Roy Thomas's recollections of it. It's like I still, in a way, can't process it in my head that it actually happened because surely if it did, it would be everywhere. We would we would know about this story. People would be talking about this story often, you know. Um, and still, all I could find is a couple little posts on a message board, uh, something from Bob Rizakis from 2002, and then some stuff I had to dig out of physical magazines. You know, I had to dig them out of uh, Alter Ego and uh, Comic Book Creator. It just feels like this is something that would have been, I don't know, just wider, more widely known. Uh, but, uh, I mean, that's the story here, behind the story of the Crimson Avenger uh, artist. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot out there that you could dig into if you wanted to. I'm not going to link to anything, because that is all just innuendo and... Uh, I'm not going to facilitate that. It's there if you want it. You could find it if, if you try hard enough. But, uh, you know, there are some theories, and I'm not going to play with them. <laughs> I'm leaving it where it's at. It was a horrible thing that happened. It didn't need to happen. But it did. Um, and it's weird. We're about to go into a synopsis on Crimson Avenger number one, and it just doesn't feel like... Uh, doesn't feel right. <laughs> doesn't feel like we should be doing it. Um... I suppose in the interest of uh, completionism here, I might as well uh, send it to the horns and then we will come back and uh, work our way through the uh, first issue of the 1988 uh, Crimson Avenger. Okay, Crimson Avenger number one, June 1988, cover date. The Dark Cross Conspiracy Chapter 1, You Go to My Head, dot, dot, dot. Writers and editors are Roy and Dan Thomas, art by Greg Brooks. Colors, Bill Ray. Letters, Helen Vesic. Associate Editor, Mark Wade. Cover price, $1. And uh, we open on uh, December 7th, 1938. Uh, that's uh, back before that day would go on to live in infamy, of course. We meet an American Nazi sympathizer in a parked car listening to the radio. Over the air, we got a guy named Professor Goldstein, or Goldstein, a fugitive from Nazi Germany, and uh, very likely this one fellow's target. Before he can peel out in pursuit, however, he is faced off with the Crimson Avenger. The baddie decides that he's going to drive off anyway, and so Crimson, get this, uh, sets the dude's face on fire. So, uh, like, literally, he sets his face on fire. Uh, Our hero then hops into his own hoopty and asks his driver, Wing, to follow that car. A chase is on. The bad guys unload their guns into Crimson's cab before finally being rammed off the road and sent careening into a fire hydrant. A brief firefight follows, with Crimson coming out on top. As the dust begins to settle, we uh, find that Wing got winged. He was shot in the arm. 
Crimson chucks a baddie through a window and beats a hasty retreat before the police arrive on the scene. Now, we learn here that Crimson is looked at as though he's a crook in the newspapers, including the very newspaper that the Crimson Avengers civilian identity owns and operates. We jump ahead to probably the next day. Uh, Crimson is in his Lee Travis civvies, and uh, he and Wing are pulling into a large New Jersey estate for a charity auction. We get our first of many references to a story that took place in Secret Origins number 5, which, if I'm being completely honest, sort of pulls me out of the story. I mean, this is a, this is a number one issue. We shouldn't have all these callbacks. Anyway, they notice a plane sputtering out of the sky overhead. They hop in the hoopty and chase it down to ensure they're there to assist the pilot if they need be. Turns out that this pilot's a g g g g g girl is a Chinese woman named Su Ling Fang. It turns out that somebody planted a wool sponge in her fuel tank. I guess it's better than a banana, right? Um, anyway, this wa- this Fang is a famous pilot, and she had a spread in Life magazine and everything. She's just well known here, and she is here for the auction. Travis offers her a ride, but it looks like the old hoopty's got a flat tire. Uh, Lee excuses himself to change it while Wing entertains the lady pilot. Our man pats him on the back, pats himself on the back for knowing how to change a tire, and uh, ensures us via narration panel that he wasn't always a rich man, because he'd actually only inherited the newspaper from his wealthy godfather this very year, so he's he was a common man up until just a little while ago. From here, we head into the estate for the auction. Among the items up for bid is a Fabergé egg, which Lee notices catches the eye of a beautiful Russian woman. He decides to outbid her like a jerk, and then he offers to hand it over to her if she agrees to go on a date with him. Now, this woman is Sonia Nabatov, a dancer. She says, yeah, I'll meet with you later that night after her performance. Back at the office, our man pulls an all-nighter, or an all-eveninger, I guess, as he uh, reads and attempts to respond to a threatening note which is covered with iron crosses and refers to him as a, quote, Jew lover, he is interrupted by some of his workers who are all about to head off to a Hitler party. Um, And it's uh, exactly what it sounds like. Uh, I I suppose these were all the rage back in the late 30s. Uh, These are parties where all of the attendees dress as Adolf Hitler and, and walk around saluting one another. I tried to do a little bit of research to see if this was an actual phenomenon, but couldn't find anything relevant to this era. If you look up Hitler party, uh, besides being put on a watch list probably, you're just going to find things about his political party, the Nazis. You're not going to really find anything about these uh, these very strange late 30s shindigs. Um, back to the story. Next, Lee is headed to the Manhattan Russian Ballet in order to meet with his date. After the performance, she requests he take her to the top of the Empire State Building for some caviar and vodka. Unfortunately, upon arrival at the Empire State Building, they find that someone done jumped off the thing earlier that night. So the whole building's taped off, and our happy couple is going to have to figure out a plan B. So, plan B involves heading back to Travis's place for some heavy necking. He assures her that he lives in the penthouse of his building, but apologizes that it's only 22 stories up. So, probably not as exquisite a view as the top of Empire State Building. Uh, The makeout scene is very, very weird. Uh, We get some extreme close-ups on their lips, but they're, like, not colored, so it just looks like like a pair of butts bumping into one another. It's, 
Mm, not pleasant to look at. Now, the make-out session is interrupted by a phone call. Travis is informed by that very same Professor Hiram Goldstein from the beginning of the issue that there's going to be a meeting of the German-American Bund in Yorkville later on that night. Initially, our man doesn't seem terribly interested, but comes around to the idea of going there pretty quickly. Before hanging up, Goldstein, Goldstein, however you say that, I know people who pronounce it different ways, so I apologize to anyone who has that name that I'm saying it the wrong way to them. Um, He tells uh, Lee Travis that he ought to stop slandering that Crimson guy in his newspaper, so uh, looks like uh, Mr. Travis has him fooled at the very least. After ending the call, Lee squeezes in one more snog session with Sonya before assuring her that Wing will hand over that Fabergé egg the following morning, and she's cool with it. With her gone, he changes into his Crimson Avenger togs and heads out to the Bund. There, he finds what he assumes to be a wino passed out in an alley. Turns out, this ain't no drunk. It's actually a corpse. A pretty well-beaten corpse, in fact. Uh, The stiffs had his eyeballs removed, even. Overcome with shock, Crimson is taken unawares by a police officer's flashlight. Before he knows it, he's surrounded by cops who promise he'll be spending the rest of his days in Alcatraz. Crimson assures them that this was a setup, but they ain't buying it. They do have one question, though. Just whose face lay under that mask? So, as a story, um, I'll admit that this wasn't as dull as I thought it was going to be. I I picked this issue up. I actually picked this miniseries up all in one go. Uh, There was a shop nearby, or in, in the city, that... They had a consignment section, and for a little while they had just a just a torrent of uh, of like those four to six issue miniseries from the eighties and, and into the early nineties that were just all shrinked and cheap. You know, you'd get like I probably got the four issue miniseries of this for like a dollar, and uh, oh man, those were some those were some good trips to the comic shop. Uh, just being able to pick everything up in one go, not having to worry about, you know, finding issue three in a, in a quarter bin somewhere. Or doing that thing where uh, you find every issue of a miniseries except one in, like, the quarter bin. But then the one you don't find, you can't find for, you know, cheaper than ten bucks, uh, you know, anywhere. So you, you, anything you saved was uh, pretty much thrown out the window. But uh, I, I picked up the Crimson Avenger as a, you know, as a four-pack. Uh, it was a... Pretty good stuff there. Like uh, I remember, like the Gargoyle miniseries from Marvel, the uh, Falcon miniseries from Marvel, uh, those uh, John Byrne, uh, like World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of uh, Metropolis series. Those were there. I just I spent a ton of money on uh, on these uh, on these miniseries collections. Uh, Slash Maraud, uh, the Weird, that uh, JLI story. A lot of great stuff there. Um, so much that I hadn't actually even looked at yet, but uh, wanted to. Uh, Hero Hotline was there. Uh, one that was there that I didn't pick up, and uh, this is one of those you know kick yourself moments. They had like five sets of the old Rocket Raccoon miniseries there for like a buck or two, the whole series. And uh, I mean, you you couldn't you can't touch those now uh, since the uh, the Guardians movie came out. But man, I, I just left it there thinking like, eh. 
you know, what do I need a Rocket Raccoon miniseries for? Or, or I'll just get it next time. You know, it was just like one of those that maybe I picked up and just put back when it's like, eh, I'll get Crimson Avenger instead. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got the uh, I got the series and, and never looked at it. Uh, I flipped through it a few times and thought it looked ghastly dull, um, which I'm, I'm happy to report isn't really the case here. I had a, I had a decent enough time with it here. Uh I'd only ever made it a few pages <laughs> before this, uh, before this, you know, one big go for the blog. But uh, I'm glad I finally powered through it. Um, didn't really set my world on fire either way. Didn't love it. Didn't hate it. Um, I do not like the fact that there's so many references to uh, the secret secret origins issue. Um, I feel like, you know, like me, I, I bought this four pack. And, uh, you know, sure, it was 20 years later Or 15 years later But uh, imagine getting that home Chomping at the bit to read it You open it up and you find out you're not getting the You're not getting the whole story You know, you have to You have to have a totally different issue Of a totally different series To get the, uh, to get the most out of it I mean, you could understand it And get through it just fine uh, By reading the first issue But you are There is a feeling that you're missing something And, uh I feel like that was kind of a cheat uh, to to get a little bit of cross pollination, and uh, even though I have you know a f- full run of Secret Origins, it's like that's in a different long box, you know. <laughs> Having to dig through another long box just to do that, it, it's really just not worth the effort, unfortunately. Um, now, with that out of the way, I thought the uh, the issue was okay. The issue was okay. It's very uh, of its time, of you know where it's. You know, it's supposed to be in the late 30s, so we do have some some bits and pieces of late 30s culture and uh, history coming around, which, I mean, we've come to expect from anything with Roy Thomas. Roy Thomas is just a nut for history and uh, is just like a wizard at weaving it through, uh, through these, you know, fictional stories. So can't dislike that. I thought that was really cool stuff here. Um, Crimson Avenger, I still... He's not a character that's going to rock my socks ever. I, I think he's got a pretty cool look, um, but again, I mean, you know, then then the bell rings, then the you know, then the words start to drip in, so it gets kind of dull for me pretty quick. Um, I do like uh, the flavor in his like civilian life. I, I like that he runs a newspaper that's pretty much the main uh, the main cause of slandering his costumed self. I, I think that's pretty cool. Um, I, I just I like him as a as a civilian, I guess, uh, more so than the hero. But this is just me saying that I haven't read much with Crimson Avenger, so for all I know, I mean, if I picked up the second issue of this and read it, maybe I'd love it. I don't know. I uh, I, I felt skeevy enough reading this one. I can compare it to uh, like being a professional wrestling fan and trying to watch a Chris Benoit match, where. I mean, it's hard to, to separate the, uh, you know, the performer or the artist or the creator with the real life. And that's, uh, and I, I can't say it's a shame because, I mean, in both cases, they did terrible things. Um, maybe I'm just not, uh, I don't have the uh, emotional or intellectual maturity to separate them. That's uh, certainly a possibility. I, I know folks on both sides at least when we talk about you know a Chris Benoit, where people can separate him from uh, his his ring work, and other people who 
uh, cannot, and I, I fall more in the cannot. Um, I have a very hard time watching anything with him in it. So, I mean, that brings us right into the art here. How, how do we even talk about the art? Do we talk about the art? I mean, I I, <laughs> I try to put it as though I'm a uh, some sort of a intellectual here, and uh, and being able to look at things analytically and without any sort of bias. But it's very difficult to do so in this situation. And I didn't know anybody involved in this. I don't have any sort of connection to it, but it's really hard for me to run down this guy's uh, what happened in his life and and then say he's you know some sort of fantastic artist. It's a very difficult line to walk. Um, I, what I, what I will say is if you are unfamiliar with the backstory for this issue, the art will not stand out as being overly good or overly bad. It's serviceable. Um, so you're not going to get mad at it, and you're probably not going to fall in love with it. That's probably all I feel really comfortable <laughs> saying about his artwork. Um, now, uh, unsurprisingly, at least to my knowledge, uh, this uh, has not been made available digitally, and I don't believe it's been collected, maybe. I don't think it has been. Um, so if you do want to get your hands on this, you're going to have to... Uh, you're going to have to find the single issues. Or, I mean, I'm not going to tell you where to go. <laughs> but you can, you, you all know what to do if you if you want to see this. Um, but I think that's probably about all we've got for this one. It's uh, And I apologize for the seriousness. And I, I mean, that's not the kind of podcaster I am. I'm not looking to become a true crime guy. Uh, even though more people would probably listen. Uh, I, am, uh, I just thought as a... As a purveyor of uh, of weird comics history, that I I wanted to share this with uh, with the listeners, um, because it's just one of those things that feels like more people should know about it. It feels like it should be a more widely, maybe not discussed or just just known thing in the industry, and uh, it's not. You just don't really hear too much about it. Um, so uh, I, I hope I didn't, you know, <laughs> I hope I didn't ruin anybody's impression of uh, anything here. Um, and I hope that I was even-handed enough in this uh, coverage and in my delivery. I, I don't want to, I don't want to opine. I don't want to really give any sort of uh, impression of, you know, how I feel about it outside of everything that I volunteered. Um and uh, I didn't want to touch on any of the innuendo, any theories, just uh, delivering the facts as I found them in print by the people who were, were closest to it, who actually, you know, put things in print. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this uh, story. Um, and if you do want to uh, check out the visual aids for this episode, they are at the blog at chrisdesigninfiniteearths.com. Every, uh, every bit of... Uh, the Mark Wade interview that discusses this has been uh, included. Um, the Roy Thomas interview has been included. The uh, Bob Rizakis piece has been included. Um, even the uh, the initial uh, message board post, uh, the pertinent parts of that have been included as well. So you can listen to this episode. You can take the audio journey with me here, and you can also pop over to the site for the visual half of this journey here. Um, I try to cite my sources as often as possible, and this uh, this one in particular, because there are just so many uh, 
it, it's dark and deep, and I wanted to make sure that everything was covered here. And um, I had, I could, I was able to back up anything that was being said here because I, all I'm doing is quoting people. So that's, that's about it, though. Um, I think I'll let you get back to uh, real life at this point. Um, if you're still listening at this point, I thank you so so much for joining me and hanging out uh, on this fine day. And uh, if you want more, you can find me at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Ace Comics. You can find me at chrisandreggie.com, uh, where we're still doing Moratory Mondays every Monday. And uh, from Claremont to Claremont, an X-Men podcast, hopefully the first Saturday of every month. Um, there are also uh, things I never mentioned, Facebook groups. We have Facebook groups for From Claremont to Claremont. Uh, you've got to look up 90s X-Men on Facebook. There's also a Chris's on Infinite Earths group, which, uh, you know, <laughs> they're there if you want them. Um, but other than that, I, I think we're probably about done here. Thank you again so, so much for hanging out. I really, really, really appreciate it. Till next time, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. See ya.